a religious institution argues in favor of abortion rights. Hello and welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Tom Hudson is out today. A synagogue in Palm Beach County filed a lawsuit that challenges a new state law prohibiting abortion after 15 weeks, saying it violates their religious freedom. We talked to the rabbi of that synagogue to find out why. Also, Florida decided not to order COVID-19 vaccine for kids. We speak with the doctor about that decision and their current high transmission levels. Finally, the food scene just got a little more interesting. For the first time, several restaurants in Miami earned high marks from the prestigious Michelin restaurant ratings. It's a first not only for South Florida, but also for the state as a whole. All of that today on the South Florida Roundup after the news. Made possible by Willie the Bee Man, beer removal specialist. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Tom Hudson is out today. Florida's new law banning abortion after 15 weeks goes into effect July 1st. Governor Ron DeSantis signed House Bill 5 in April. Abortion clinics have already filed lawsuits earlier this month to block the law. Now there's another lawsuit, this time filed last week by the Jewish congregation La Dorvador in Boynton Beach. The synagogue's lawsuit alleges that the new state law violates Floridians' constitutional rights to privacy and religious freedom. Joining us now is the synagogue's rabbi, Barry Silver. He's also a former Democrat state legislator from Boca, from Boca Raton. Thanks for joining us, Rabbi Silver. Hey, it's my pleasure to be with you, Wilkin. Thank you so much. I'm also the lawyer for the congregation. I'm a rabbi and a lawyer. Absolutely. Uh, now, before it's not, the... It's not, easy being, it's not easy being both a rabbi and a lawyer. I was approached once by a person who said he was wrong by a neighbor. I didn't know if I should tell him to sue him or to forgive him. <laughs> but I am wearing... I am wearing both hats in this case. Absolutely. You're, you're, you're wearing multiple hats, I, I would say. Uh, before the law, yeah. abortion in Florida was legal up to 24 weeks. Why is your synagogue challenging the state's new law banning abortion after 15 weeks? It is a horrible idea. And if it ever went into effect, it would criminalize the practice of Judaism. And it would also criminalize the practice of other religions as well. The people behind this Ill, ill-intentioned law are trying to make the religion of right-wing zealots the law of the land when it comes to abortion and when it comes to defining when life begins. Of course, we've relied on the right of privacy over all these years, about 50 years, and it works well. But if Roe v. Wade is going to be overturned, and we hope it won't be, but if it is, we're going to raise the issues of religious freedom. We have the right to practice Judaism and other religions as we see fit. The, the law would criminalize Jewish behavior because in Judaism, if you have to choose between a fetus and the welfare of the mother, the welfare of the mother wins out every time. This law disregards the welfare of the mother and places the rights of a fetus above a mother in Judaism. Hmm. And, abortion and, and, is not only something that we're entitled to, it's something that we're required. It's required of women to undergo abortion if necessary to protect her health and well-being. And just to note, you mentioned Roe v. Wade, Florida's abortion law, similar to a bill passed in Mississippi, which, based on a leaked draft of the opinion, uh, could be used by the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade. That final ruling is expected near the end of June. Now, Rabbi Silver, what are your congregants saying about the Florida's abortion ban after 15 weeks? Have you spoken to them? Oh, of course. I couldn't just do this on my own. We have 
enthusiastic support and approval of my congregation, of my board, and Jewish people around the country, even around the world, are, are contacting us and thanking us for standing up, not only for the rights of Jews, but the rights of atheists and all people of all religions who don't want fundamentalist Christians writing the law of the land for abortion and telling us when life begins. That's a religious issue, and they've taken that religious position and tried to impose it on everybody else. And they're, they're chipping away at the separation, the wall of separation between church and state. And if that wall ever collapses, then this country will go back to the dark days where Christianity and government joined forces to bring us such horrors as the Crusades, Inquisitions, pogroms, and the Holocaust. We don't want to go back to those terrible days. Hmm. Now, your congregation, uh, Lador Vador, is known in Palm Beach County for its social action and willingness to make public statements on current issues like Dwayne, what you're making now. You refer to your practice as, quote, cosmic Judaism. What does that mean? And how does your practice relate to branches of Judaism like Reform, Conservative and Orthodox? That's a great question. Our congregation started out Reform under my father, the classically trained Reform rabbi, and he was also a rational thinker, and he inspired me, and we co-officiated together until he hit the age of 95. He was preparing for services one day and then took a nap and didn't wake up, and now they're stuck with me. What I've done is I've taken his thinking and his beliefs, and we've extended it, so now we don't, we've left the Reform movement officially, and we are now Cosmic Judaism. Cosmic Judaism was really envisioned by Albert Einstein, who said, the religion of the future will be a cosmic religion. By that he meant one which embraces science, and is not tribal, narrow, or parochial, but uses religion to build bridges of understanding among all people, rather than walls of separation. And so we practice a form of Judaism that he also envisioned when he said, science without religion is lame, and religion without science is blind. This world has seen the horrors inflicted by blind religious faith, wars, even ex executing people who taught science, the Salem witch trials which they persecuted women. We believe that if the revelations of religion and of science were joined together, as Carl Sagan said, he said, imagine what powers of inspiration and imagination can be tapped with the wonders of science applied to religion. And that's what we do. Hmm. And, and let's stick to that ideology. Uh, now, the lawsuit claims the act denies women their autonomy and that Jewish law allows abortion to be an option available to protect the overall well-being of women, uh, quote, free of government interference. In what cases does Judaism in general uh, protect the right to get an abortion? It's pretty widespread as far as what circumstances would apply. You have to realize that Judaism is not monolithic. They say for every two Jews, the only thing they can agree on is how much the third Jew should give to charity. So there is a, a difference in Judaism between the spectrums. But all Jews, all Jews cherish life and don't need other people to distort our Torah and our Bible and then force that interpretation back on us. So to answer your question directly, if a woman feels that carrying a fetus to term would cause her emotional harm, would be detrimental to the family, would be something that would cause great emotional distress, 
would be harmful in, in different ways, then she is entitled to an abortion. If the woman feels that this could cause her mental distress or bodily harm, she's not just entitled but required to have an abortion. There are many such instances where that could happen. This law has no exceptions for rape or incest or the mental health of a mother. If, in Jewish law, if a woman is raped and somebody took control of her body, it is an outrageous affront to say that now the state should take control of her body and force her to bear the child of the rapist, as this law does, or if she is pregnant as a result of incest, or if this would create mental trauma. All of those situations would require a Jewish woman to have an abortion, and all of those situations are not available. All of those exceptions do not exist in this law. Hmm. And, li- and like you said, Jewish law isn't monolithic, or Judaism isn't monolithic. There are different interpretations of uh, Jewish religious law and its position on abortion. It's nuanced, right? A nuanced interpretation. Judaism uh, position isn't completely against abortion and doesn't outright support it either, unless, like, unless, like you said, it protects the overall well-being of women. What's your congregation's interpretation of Jewish law, and is this interpretation the driving force behind the lawsuit? Oh, yeah, absolutely, it's the driving force behind it. Well, it, we interpret it according to science and according to reason, and I, as the, the rabbi of Lador Vador, help shed light on a rational approach to all of these issues. So the, you're, you're right about Judaism not being monolithic, as I say, but one thing we all agree on, and we find it arrogant and self-righteous for people to think that they need to teach Jewish people about the sanctity of life, we get it. We understand the sanctity of life. And, and I believe that the, the other side should not call themselves pro-life. They should call themselves pro-lie, because they're lying when they say they care about life. If they cared about life, they would get all these horrible assault weapons off our streets, they would protect the planet, and they would have universal health care. So we don't believe that pro-life means forcing women to have children against their will. And one thing that all Jews do agree on across the spectrum is this. We have our own laws and our own rules and our own conscience, and women are perfectly capable of making these decisions. Not one Jew that I've ever heard of wants the government to write the law of abortion, because the Orthodox, they have their laws too, and they're free to practice Orthodox Judaism under their laws. At least they were. This law, this act, criminalizes the practice of Orthodox Judaism, which protects the life of the mother. In fact, in Orthodox Judaism, a fetus that is a threat to the mother is called a rodest, that means a pursuer. And even up to the moment of birth, if that rodeth, if the fetus is going to harm the woman, she has an obligation and a right to abort the fetus. And this one second, Bear Silver. criminalize Jewish behavior. Uh, I'm Wilkin Brutus. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're speaking with Rabbi Bear Silver from the Jewish congregation of Lador Vador in Boynton Beach about a lawsuit challenging the new state's abortion ban after 15 weeks. Um, uh, Mr. Silver, according to a 2015 Pew Research study, 83% of American Jews say abortion should be legal in, in all or most uh, cases. Um, in your lawsuit, you claim that states abortion, the state's abortion ban um, threatens the Jewish family. What did you mean by that? Many people have speculated, why are the Jewish people still here? Even though many empires that have come and gone are far more powerful have tried to destroy us. And many possible answers to that question have been hypothesized. I happen to believe that it's because the power of love triumphs over the love of power. 
And when their power ran out, those empires disappeared and can't be found today except in a history book. The power of love is what's transmitted through the Jewish family. Our traditions, our ideals, our hopes, our dreams are all transmitted through the Jewish family. That is the source of our strength and the integrity of the Jewish family should never be threatened. We've survived all types of vicissitudes because of the family. This law threatens the integrity of the Jewish family because it tells Jewish families, we'll decide how many children you have, we'll decide whether you're going to raise another child or not, we'll decide when you're going to become a parent and when you won't. You know, if if you have a woman who's not married and you force her to give birth, that is highly disruptive, not just to her life, but to the family, life of the family. It becomes much more difficult to enter into a smooth family relationship when you force pregnancy on women when they're not ready for it. This mm. law is a direct threat to the integrity of the Jewish family. And and so, Rabbi Silver, you're also an attorney and former Democratic state legislator. What are the obstacles this lawsuit may face in court? Well, the, the biggest obstacle is uh, the status quo and also judges who are placed in office by politicians in order to carry out a political, religious agenda rather than justice. Judaism believes strongly in justice, emet vatsedek, truth and righteousness. And when we have politicized courts like the Supreme Court, where you have one political party putting all these people on it and playing games and not allowing the other party to put their people on it, when you have a state Supreme Court, court that's picked by political reasons. That's the biggest obstacle of all, and it undermines our system of justice. As a rabbi and an attorney, I will say that our system of justice is not just. We need to have a system where justice and truth and honesty prevail, not politics. Now, abortion clinics also filed a lawsuit challenging the state's abortion ban after 15 weeks. Is the synagogue working with those clinics on this suit as well? Before they even filed their lawsuit, I contacted them and I pleaded with them that we should do this together in one lawsuit. Um, They had a different idea. They didn't go along with that suggestion. I will do everything in my power to coordinate with them as I have tried to do and work closely with them. They focused on just one issue, the right of privacy. That's an extremely important issue. It's very well protected in the state of Florida. Our Constitution has an amendment that was written in by the people a right of privacy, and the Florida Supreme Court interpreted that to extend to abortion. So we, we also have the right of privacy in our lawsuit, and we champion that right. But we also have other forms of argument to raise, including discrimination against people with mental illness, which there's no exception for. So we will add our arguments to theirs. I've deferred to them and allowed them to file first and to uh, have a hearing there, and uh, we're going to do everything we can to join forces, because the way to beat the opposition who are trying to impose their religion on everybody else is for all fair-minded people of every religion, every background, to all work together to create a better world. And you just mentioned a, a hearing. I assume you're referring to the proposed injunction to stop the abortion law, which uh, take place in the next few weeks. What, what do you expect? Uh, we've been hearing that they intend, and it's not set in stone, and there's no firm date, that the we're looking to have a hearing at the end of June, and Lador Vador hopes to be a part of that hearing. Now, if your lawsuit 
fails to block House Bill 5, uh, Florida's new law banning abortion after 15 weeks. Do you still see a role for yourself or the synagogue in helping members of your community who may choose to seek an abortion? Yes. Well, we know that the best way to improve society is, one, to change the laws, two, to change these politicians who are doing the bidding of malevolent forces, and three, the most important, is not just a change in law and politicians, but a transformation in the human spirit. That's where religion steps in. Religious leaders have failed in that regard. We have as much influence as a white crayon. Everybody's too busy practicing mindless rituals instead of the spiritual and making the world better. We will always continue to speak out and try to transform minds and try to bring people together and try to use religion to bring out the best in us not the beast in us, as some of the religions do, and we'll continue this effort. Regardless of what happens at that hearing, our lawsuit is here to stay. That's just a preliminary injunction hearing. Regardless of how it goes, the lawsuit will still go on. We've got tremendous support from all across the country and even outside the country to keep this fight going. We will fight for religious freedom forever. That's our role as Jewish people or people of conscience, and we'll keep doing that with all good, the people of goodwill around the world. Barry Silver is the rabbi for the Jewish congregation Lador Vador in Boynton Beach. Thanks for joining us, Rabbi Silver. Thank you. And remember, never doubt that a small group of people can change the world. As Margaret Mead said, it's the only thing that ever has. I urge everybody to get involved, take a role, and we can work together to achieve peace and justice and human rights and a better planet. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for joining us, sir. Yep. Still to come, we speak with the doctor about Florida's decision not to order COVID-19 vaccine for kids and the current surge in COVID-19 cases. 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Officials announced yesterday that Miami-Dade County has made a deal with the Utah-based Nomi Health to continue free COVID-19 testing and vaccinations at dozens of sites across the county. This comes just a few days after County Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava notified county commissioners that free services would end next month for people without insurance. That and Florida's decision not to pre-order COVID-19 vaccines for kids amid a surge in cases. We're hearing that Governor Ron DeSantis is now reversing course on allowing Florida health care providers to order vaccine for kids. Joining us now is Dr. Aline Marty, an infectious disease specialist with Florida International University to talk about the state of COVID-19 in Florida. Dr. Marty, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. Absolutely. Um, How would you describe the current COVID-19 situation in South Florida at this time? So we are in our sixth wave. So this is wave number six of COVID-19. We have a different set of uh, variants that are circulating than previously. We, are, we have uh, the variants that cause a, a, a very large surge in South Africa, the BA.4 and the BA.5. In our particular area, we have more of the BA.5 than 0.4 but they're very similar viruses. We also have uh, lingering the BA.2.12.2, 
all three of those that I've just named are all a subtypes of Omicron. And these particular subtypes are all very aggressive in being able to enter uh, and, and colonize our cells and then produce a large viral load. And they overwhelm uh, in uh, previous immunity from somebody who had, say, Omicron back in December or January. But generally speaking, the cases are behaving mildly among people who have have had infection before, particularly recently. And of course, it's it's not as bad if you've had if you've had your vaccines and if you're boosted. There is an increase in hospitalizations, but overwhelmingly, the people who are hospitalized are individuals who are unvaccinated. Once again, the unvaccinated are occupying uh, 76% of the uh, of the beds that are COVID beds right now in South Florida. 76%. That is absolutely high. Uh, I do want to ask you about this specific news that just broke. Governor DeSantis just reversed course on this decision not to pre-order vaccines for young children. He reversed, he reversed that decision. What are your thoughts on this new development? I think he's now made the decision that is in the best interest of Floridians. The, the, the problem with the earlier position was that uh, the best place for a child to get their vaccine is from their pediatrician. Pediatricians cannot order directly from the companies. They have to order from the state. So if the state doesn't obtain the vaccines, then families can't go to their local pediatrician and get their vaccines. It's not just a matter of whether or not a state facility is providing a vaccine. It actually gets all the way down to the individual family and their individual pediatrician. And um, by not having pre-ordered the vaccine and not having the vaccine, that earlier position was placing Florida children at high risk because uh, during the Omicron surges, we have seen more hospitalizations of children than in any other wave that we've ever had. And, uh, and these vaccines, especially, uh, you have to bear in mind that children from six months to four years, in that age range alone, we've had over 400 deaths. Um, and, and so uh, that's not even taking into consideration the reality that uh, children also get long COVID, albeit at a lesser rate than adults. Children have this horrible thing that's rare, that's called um, the Kawasaki or MIA uh, disease, which can have tremendously bad consequences. And, um, and, and so, and children have been hospitalized. Uh, there have been, this is something that more than 13 million children in the United States have, have undergone, and we need to protect our children. So reversing that position is exactly the right thing for, for uh, Governor DeSantis to do, and I'm very glad he's done it. And he's done it amid a, a, a surge in cases. Um, so we'll, we'll talk about both simultaneously. What, what's different now uh, in terms of the surge um, compared to past surges we've experienced? So this surge that we're having right now doesn't have the steepness that we saw from the original Omicron. It's a it's a it's a less shallow excuse me it's a more shallow curve, and so therefore um, the incrementation in cases is happening more slowly. In addition, we're not as 
uh, clearly aware of the total numbers of people that are positive because people are doing rapid antigen tests at home and some of those positive results are not being reported. So we're not capturing the total number of people who are positive. But since uh, looking at uh, Dade, Broward, Palm Beach, uh, the numbers there do show that we have somewhere between 20 and 25% of our population is, is currently shedding virus and, or positive, if you will. And that's a significant viral load for our community. So we do have to pay attention uh, right now uh, as to where we are and whether or not we're uh, have protections such as vaccinations on board or not because again you're not vaccinated you are at risk this the viruses that are circulating right now these subtypes of omicron individually are just as bad as the original SARS-CoV-2 that came out of Wuhan um, so if you're the only reason they seem milder is if you have immunity Hmm. 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. Uh, Dr. Marty, it seems like the chapter just continues <laughs> since 2020 uh, and not quite sure what chapter we're in right now. Um, now, the county had relied on reimbursement funds from the Federal Emergency Management Agency to pay for tests and vaccines for uninsured people. What happens if that money runs out? So that's gonna put the burden of paying for those tests either on individual insurance or for on the uninsured people on the local taxpayers because it's gonna to have to come out of our funds. It's, it remains a critical issue for us to know where the virus is and how much the viral load is uh, as a community. And then obviously for each individual, they need to know uh, in order to manage their own risks and the risks of their close uh, friends and family. Hmm. And just to, uh, just to clarify, I was referring to Miami-Dade County. Are there other options for free public health services? So yes, there are. There are a number of um, private uh, non-governmental organizations that that have funds and are able to provide services to to underprivileged individuals but that does depend on the charity of of others to have the funds and the resources and the manpower to provide those services um yeah um now <clears throat> excuse me just for folks who are just now listening um can you clarify again what is contributing to that to this surge in COVID-19 hospitalizations and high transmission rates in this latest phase of the pandemic? Well, as there has been an end to mandatory masking, mandatory use of uh, public health and safety measures, mandatory testing of people who are flying, for example, when that all goes away, what the only way to protect yourself is an individual protection. You've shifted the burden of protection from the government to each individual, right? The individual always had some of the burden to protect themselves and their family, but now uh, much more of it is on you, is on yourself to, to make sure that you and your family are protected. That's really uh, one of the reasons that this has gone up because as we no longer testing and also because of the, the tremendous fatigue that we all have about these public health measures, people are speaking as if the, 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 there used to be a COVID-19 pandemic. And unfortunately, it's not over. 
It's and um, it won't be over for quite a while yet. And we do have to, unfortunately, maintain our awareness and our vigilance of where we are and what our um, what our risk factors are for ourselves and for our family and friends that we're around. Absolutely. And, and Dr. Marty, what can local governments do to give better guidance to residents and assess their COVID-19 community levels? So, well, I think the mayor is doing a very fine job here in Miami-Dade. She looks at the uh, at the science. She evaluates what sorts of resources she has available to her. And she's been implementing uh, as many uh, pro, uh, projects as she can to provide services, especially to those that are uninsured that, you know, they cannot otherwise receive these services. She's encouraging of the uh, non-governmental in, uh, organizations as well so that they can also provide services. And, um, and that's it's from a local government perspective, um, but each of us, uh, if we're a business owner, we, we, have, we need our workers to be healthy. We hope that our customers uh, are healthy and we want to help keep them healthy. So we should main, we should make sure that our, our places of business are well ventilated, uh, are hygienic, and, uh, and that people remain uh, aware that, unfortunately, this pandemic is not over. Absolutely. I'm Wilkin Brutus. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're speaking with Dr. Aline Marty about the state of COVID-19 in our communities. 800-743-WLRN. That's 800-743-9576. You can tweet us at WLRN. Now, Dr. Marty, I normally report out of Palm Beach County. Uh, can we expect more counties to take the initiative to ensure access to testing and vaccines? I, uh, it's hard to predict. I'm not a politician, but I would certainly hope so. I think uh, one of the fundamental uh, things that uh, statesmen have said for years about what is a good leader, a good leader knows what they know and knows more importantly what they don't know and then surrounds themselves with advisors who are experts in those things that the leader themselves doesn't know. So if you have a good leader in Palm Beach County, and they are going to turn to the public health officials, the the physicians, and the uh, nurse practitioners, and so forth in their communities, and get the right information so that they should put into effect those measures that best help their community. And that means measures for making testing easy, making testing free, if at all possible, or minimally expensive. Uh, and also, of course, access to, to antivirals. Uh, we, I, I forgot to mention, that's another key reason for, for doing the testing uh, and doing the testing promptly because the sooner that you take an antiviral, if you're eligible for it, the better off you are in terms of reducing your risk for severe disease, for long COVID, and for, um, and for any kind of really bad negative outcome. And Dr. Marty, you talked about COVID fatigue earlier. That was a topic of discussion that I had this morning, actually. Are you seeing more people test in person or at home? So there, there is a growing tendency for people to test at home. It's obviously easier. Uh, we can all get free COVID tests of the highest quality, the, the antigen test for, from the U.S. government. There's a website for it that the U.S. government has, the federal government, and they will ship it right to your door. Uh, and they'll even make up for uh, if you haven't ordered them before by giving you plenty of tests for the future. These these uh, rapid 
rapid tests are very good. And not only are they very good, they last uh, uh, over two years. So if you don't use them right away, that's not a problem. And, uh, and really, it, it's not a bad concept to have people testing themselves. The only thing is that uh, they really should notify their healthcare provider about their positive test if they have it, both for reporting reasons and so that that healthcare provider can give them advice as to how to uh, get past the illness with minimal consequences. Dr. Aline Marty is an infectious disease specialist with Florida International University. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Marty. My pleasure. Thank you. No questions on monkeypox, huh? <laughs> no questions <laughs> on monkeypox yet. We'll get you next time for that. Okay, very good. Take care. You too now. Still to come, we talk to an award-winning journalist, Carlos Frias, about Miami restaurants that have earned high marks from prestigious Michelin restaurant ratings. 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. For decades, Miami has had a role to play on the global stage, hosting major events from Formula One to FIFA, which was announced yesterday. Now, Miami's food scene has reached another level. Eleven restaurants earned one star and another earned two stars in the prestigious Michelin restaurant ratings. It's a it's a first not only for South Florida, but also for the state as a whole. So what does that say about Miami's food scene? We're joined now by Miami Herald's food and dining editor, Carlos Frias. He also joined, He also just won his second James Beard Award over the weekend. That's one of the most prestigious honors in food journalism. Congratulations, Carlos. Thank you, Wilkin. I appreciate it, man. And thanks for having me on. Absolutely. And I'm still learning how to cook, so perhaps you can help me someday. <laughs> let, me, let me tell you, I was a sports writer for a long time, and covering sports did not make me a better athlete, but covering food has made me a better cook, so... Oh, that's maybe amazing. I can. <laughs> now, now I do own an air fryer. Is that cheating? Oh no, you're no, no. That you're ahead of the game. That's a that's a that's a convection oven. That's a tiny convection oven, and that's that's fantastic thing to have at home. It's 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 absolutely amazing. I throw lamb. I throw all type of stuff in there. Okay, so <laughs> for sure, <laughs> for for, for sure. those who don't know, what does it mean to to get one of these Michelin awards? All right, so the the Michelin guide. You got to step back a little bit. Really, it's um. It's a promotional vehicle, you know. Uh, ultimately, the Michelin Guide started like in the late 1800s when they were trying to market to people who had money uh, because uh, they had, you know, they had cars and they were trying to, the Michelin Company, which is a tire company, wanted to encourage people to get in their cars and drive to different places around France. And, uh, and if they were to blow a tire, why not buy a French Michelin tire? Uh, and so they gave people kind of like a roadmap uh, physically uh, where places where they might visit to, to have a nice, uh, an excellent, you know, uh, uh, meal out, uh, meal worthy of people with the kind of money who could own a car in the early 1900s, late 1800s. And that kind of ethos still exists. So they're, they kind of highlight the extreme end of fine dining. Um, and over the last, I would say over the last five to six years, they've really started doing try to include um, kind of bang for your buck restaurants, like really places serving really good food that are more accessible. So they're trying to branch out. Right. Uh, so they put so they put these these restaurants in in guides, and uh, there are only four metro areas in uh, in the United States that are part of the guide. It's it had been mostly a European thing. Um, um, outside of uh, New York uh, for a long time. 
Um, and now Miami, uh, Miami got got in the game, so to speak. Yeah. So, so you say it was mostly a European thing. At, at what point did it shift to, I guess, the U.S. scene? Well, it, they, they kind of picked uh, four markets that they wanted uh, to be to, to have a to have a say in. In other mm. words, they they you know they know that they are international travelers, and international travelers come from Europe to major cities: New York, Chicago all of California and Miami, you know, it's, these are major central hubs for international travel. So it made sense for them to want to be in Miami. And so what are some of the factors considered in getting this recognition? You know, it's, it's a little bit opaque. Um, you know, one of our, uh, I was out of town, I was in Chicago for the James Beard award, but our, our, my colleague and, uh, uh, excellent writer, uh, Connie Ogle covered, uh, covered the announcement, and she spoke with one of the inspectors, one of the folks uh, who anonymously dines at restaurants and helped choose these re- uh, these restaurants. And it's a little bit opaque. Uh, they they say that service isn't a part of it, uh, that really it's just about the food. Um, but yet the places that end up with uh, you know the the very coveted uh, three stars, um, those places invariably have impeccable, uh, almost unheard of service. Um, you know, with coordinated service and things that look like they're out of a movie, you know. Um, so there, it's not really quite clear uh, what the what the factors are um, in choosing these places. But obviously, there are places that uh, that demand usually demand high dollars and uh, and that uh, very discriminating diners uh, uh, come to expect. Hmm. And, and Carlos, all the uh, anonymous testers all from France hired here. We have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> they're anonymous for a reason, right? Yes, they're anonymous for a reason. We really don't know. Um, and and look, I try to I try to say it this: there's there's restaurants that people say, oh, the they missed these places and they scored these places too high or these places too low. And I just try to let people remember, hey, this is a guide. This is they ultimately want to sell guides they want to sell advertising space on their website and have people visit them uh and if you're going to have a guide in miami you better have restaurants in it so so they they go out of the way to make sure that uh, that there are restaurants to visit and let's not forget that uh, ultimately the guide was offset uh in the state of florida uh the cost of the guide was offset in the state of florida because the state's tourism and marketing agency visit florida uh, contributed money, uh, as did the tourism agencies in uh, Greater Miami-Dade, uh, Orlando, and Tampa, which were the only three cities in which the guide is now present. So that's all things to keep in mind. Like, yes, let's get excited. Absolutely, this puts Miami on on a national scale, be- on an international scale, because travelers do seek out this guide. It's got a long history. But, at, at, you know, let's never forget the fact that it's a marketing tool. Yeah. yeah. Now, this is the first time that Florida restaurants have earned Michelin stars. Uh, what do you think this says about the state's food scene today? Well, I think that the guide would never have come here, no matter how much money uh, the state would have paid, if they didn't believe Miami had world class uh, culinary talent. And that goes from the the mom and pops that they highlighted in, a, in this kind of best bang for your buck category called the Bib Gourmand. Uh, to the to the one and two stars that they awarded, um, uh, folks. A lot of folks didn't think that that there would be a two star restaurant uh, awarded, and uh, and sometimes the three star restaurant is is reserved until a pl- pl- place has proven itself over a couple of years. And so I don't see a reason why we're not going to see one in Miami soon. So I think it really says that Miami is an international destination 
for food as well. And, uh, and I think that, that uh, we shouldn't downplay that. That's, that's pretty exciting. Hmm. Stay with us, Carlos. Miami Herald's food and dining editor, Carlos Frias, about Miami's food scene and recent Michelin restaurant ratings. 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. The restaurant, uh, Tintain Cafe in Coral Gables, earned one of the state's 29 Bib Gourmands Awards. It's a designation that recognizes great food at a great value. Here's the chef of the restaurant, Sachi Stats. We're going to play a quick audio. Oh, I think we have some technical difficulties. Carlos, you're back with me now. <laughs> we have some tech well, issues with that. Well, you know what? Uh, Tinta Cafe is one of my favorite spots. It, mm. it happens to be, uh, you know, maybe a mile and a half from my house, two miles. Anytime I have any kind of uh, meeting with, uh, you know, for business or whatever, I always meet folks there because I think it does this perfect thing of it does this Miami game. In other words, you will find croquetas and you will find pastelitos and these beautiful lunch and breakfast sandwiches. Uh, but at the, at the same time, it's also Sashi Stats, who you mentioned. She worked in, in Michelin-starred restaurants in New York. So she brings that level of expertise to this restaurant that is completely family-owned. And so it's, um, it's really this labor of love. And it's, it's, it's a, I, I'm glad the Michelin people recognized it because uh, it is really one of Miami's uh, favorite spots. Absolutely. And Carlos, we're going to play the clip now, and I want you to respond afterwards. A lot of people are coming down here from New York and California and Chicago. So I feel like they've elevated the expectation that people would have here. And I do think that the palette of people in Florida is is changing for the better. I think it's less of kind of a at-home cooking situation and pushing the envelope a little bit. What are your thoughts on that statement? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that when you start getting people from out of state uh, that that have a certain level of expectation for food. You know, obviously Miami opened up its its doors, during, especially during COVID. Uh, it was one of the uh, most traveled to spots in the country. And uh, and a lot of folks set up residence here and they said, well, you know, we we have this kind of food at home. We expect to, to see this kind of uh, recognition here. So I, I don't doubt that there were some heavy hitters that kind of, you know, put their thumb on the scale, you know, with the, uh, with the Greater Miami uh, Visitors and Convention Bureau and said, hey, why don't you guys try to really work at getting this, getting the Michelin Guide to come here? Uh, and, and as I understand that the conversation has been ongoing for about a year and a half. So that kind of lines up with, uh, you know, kind of the influx of people into Miami. So uh, I, I definitely think that, that that had something to do with uh, with putting us on the map. And, and, and Carlos, have you sampled the food at the recognized uh, places? I will say that I, I kind of put a predictions list of places that I thought were all uh, candidates for all those categories. And I want to say other than like one or two, I think other than one place, uh, I mentioned all those in my predictions list. So I think, I think Michelin really uh they had enough people to or inspectors uh and were connected enough and read enough and embedded themselves enough to really uh figure out which places we had already been talking about for years so so yeah i'm i was glad to see that and you better take me along because i'm gonna feel really offended if you don't <laughs> you got it man for sure we'll we'll just we'll just tack one on the company no problem <laughs> I'll, I'll let them know. Um, now, there's uh, a, a question I've always had. What is the actual difference between a James Beard Award versus a Michelin? Well, like I was saying earlier, Michelin Michelin is a guide. It's purely a guide that comes in and they 
and they rate restaurants. Uh, imagine like Yelp, except the the Yelp elite are all are all these restaurant uh, are all these quote unquote restaurant experts that are hired by Michelin to highlight these places and put them in a guide, which. Uh, which, you know, like I said, they sell a guy, they sell advertising space in it, that's the thing. The James Beard Awards are more of like an industry award, like uh, people that are on the inside, chefs who who uh, almost highlight their highlight their peers, people that are within the food industry. Uh, and it's and it's kind of like there's no there's no financial incentive. You know, nobody wins any money for winning a James Beard Award. And uh, there's no uh, there's no system other than it being kind of a nonprofit foundation. So one is definitely more of like a nonprofit type of uh, uh, group, uh, and the other one is, uh, you know, is a is a is a kind of a paid um, kind of a paid vehicle. There's money involved in that vehicle, so absolutely, yeah. Now, now, Carlos, for all of its global reputation, Miami is full of working class background with a vibrant, you know, culture and cuisine. Do you think Miami needs uh, Michelin stars? If so, why? I mean. Look, I think food tourism is an important thing, right? Like when you're in a place like Miami, we don't make anything here. You know what I mean? Like we're all about uh, tourism and, and the different ways to serve visitors. So I think something like that helps further that goal. Like I, I want to say that when I added up the numbers over the next three years, the state of Florida and the different tourism agencies are going to invest about one and a half million dollars in the Michelin Guide to quote unquote offset their costs. Is a million and a half bucks uh, worth, you know, the the tens of thousands of restaurants, you know, that are in those cities? Um, yeah, I think I think so. Especially if tourism is your game, you know, if tourism is your game, then it makes sense to spend money there. Um, so does does Miami need the Michelin thing? No, but I think that if your whole economy is based on tourism, then it absolutely makes sense to to spend that money in that place. Um, obviously inflation is up, gas is up, every single thing you're thinking of, you can think of is more expensive now. Uh, how do you think that would impact the, uh, the economy of Miami right now? Just this sort of new news regarding food. Oh man. And salaries aren't going up, right? Like that's been a steady thing. So everything is getting more expensive. We don't have that much money to spend. Ask me. Yeah. I'm cooking at home a lot, almost exclusively, unless I'm going out for a work assignment, you know, or or one day where I'm just burned out and it's late and, you know, the kids have to eat. Um, but but I do think that that will play in. So uh, the folks, I think it, I think some folks are looking at it more as like a special event type of thing where folks might have been eating out more regularly. Um, then again, this is Miami, right? Like everybody lives at, you know, Paycheck to paycheck, dollar to dollar. You know, people. You know, you might you might drive by uh, 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 an apartment complex and see like a Porsche parked out front. You know, so like people do live at the very edge and maybe beyond their means. So I, I think just going out is is part of the Miami way, and for better or worse, we're you know we're gonna continue to see it. Absolutely. And and has the pandemic affected you know upscale restaurants more than uh, uh, blue collar ones? That's, I don't know. It's hard to say. Um, nobody really keeps track of that. But I will say that last year when Florida was, you know, uh, very lax with their COVID uh, rules and the country was traveling here, uh, businesses were, restaurants were embarrassed to say to the rest of the country how well they were doing. Like restaurants were doing amazingly well. Uh, again, I've talked to individuals who are saying, you know, we, we were doing the kind of sales we had never seen in a summer. As a matter of fact, this summer, 
things are just, I think, starting to get back to normal in the sense that some people, I don't know if people have gone home or whatever it is, but you're starting to see the more regular summer slowness uh, in the restaurant industry. That, that's usually why they do like the, the county does like a Miami spice, you know, to, to have like discounted menus to encourage people to go out and keep these places afloat, you know, between the tourist seasons. So I think we had a little bit of a bubble last year because it felt like everybody in the world was in Miami. And now as, as things are getting, as things are getting back to normal or, or governments are, are acting like things are back to normal, uh, it's, uh, it's allowing for an opportunity to, uh, to see like a more regulation, you know, where everything's regulating back to, I think it's the state that it was pre-COVID. That's fascinating. And, and I was I was born in Miami, but raised in West Palm Beach. So what about neighboring counties such as Broward, Monroe, and Palm Beach County? How does the food scene uh, differ from Miami-Dade County? Well, it differs, but you're definitely seeing it spread. Like it definitely breeds, uh, it bleeds over into um Broward and Palm Beach, for instance, there's uh, one of the best chefs in Miami, uh, his restaurant closed during COVID. Uh, uh, his name is Timon Ballou. He opened a, a little place in Broward County uh, in a spot that was one of my favorite spots, uh, the old Foxy Brown. He opened a, a place called the Catherine. And uh, I've not been there, but I've heard great reviews of it. And, I, and I'm not surprised because he's fantastic. Um, and, you know, Broward County also has, you know, the Funky Buddha and they have all these um, uh, all the the nice restaurant group uh, folks who have like Top Hat Deli and and the old Foxy Brown and and so you're seeing more of that and certainly in Palm Beach like because you have like the the group that has been travel the the set that used Palm Beach as a as a winter escape you have great restaurants uh, like by the chef Clay Conley Bucan um, the uh, the restaurant called Stage which is by a, a chef that used to work Carlos? with Carlos. I, I yep, have to interrupt okay. you. <laughs> so uh, Miami Herald on and on. <laughs> Miami Herald's food and dining editor and James Beard Award winner Carlos Frias. Thank you so much for your time, man. It's my pleasure. That would do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Alisa Ramos. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Our news director is Terrence Shepard. Alicia Zuckerman is our editorial director. Jessica Bakeman is senior editor of news. The director of radio operations and show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Mayers. Richard Ives answers phones. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Thanks for calling and listening. The program is made possible by Willie the Bee Man, bee removal specialist. WLRN Public Media.